It's quite interesting that that was our gospel reading, since tonight we're going to be talking about Satan's devices. And I know, John, a couple days ago, or maybe last week, you had shared an article that described uh, the birds of Satan that sit in the rafters of the church, uh, waiting to snatch up the seed as it goes forth. And perhaps it's just me, and I might be getting this wrong, so forgive me if I am, but I look out tonight and I do see weariness. (laughs) I see people that are tired. I see people that are probably would rather be somewhere else, and I understand. I, I don't bring a hammer down on you for that. But let me just ask you for tonight, and I'm asking this even for myself in prayer, that we not let Satan snatch up the seed of the word. God will speak this evening, so let's listen and hear and drive away the birds that want to come and pluck up the seed. Satan would love nothing more than for this to be a waste of time for us. Uh, Let's not let it be that. I come again tonight to just bring kind of out of the storehouse of of seminary some more uh, jewels that I've found along the way in my uh, Classics of Personal Devotion class, we recently read a work by a Puritan by the name of Thomas Brooks called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And if you know anything about the Puritans, you'll know that they excel in thoroughness to the nth degree. Uh, And you don't have to take my word for it. I can lend you a book that I have uh, by Scottish Puritan James Durham. Uh, It's 72 sermons on Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 has 12 verses. 72 sermons on 12 verses. The Puritans were known for being thorough. They excel really in application, in in taking a text and mining it for all it's worth. Well, Thomas Brooks' work, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, is such a work that really takes this text that we have here tonight and just unfolds it in an incredible way. And his structure is so helpful. He goes through and simply lists a number of Satan's devices, uh, what Satan does and, 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 and the tools he uses to distract us, to tempt us, to draw us into despair. And he, he unfolds that and then he provides biblical remedies for those devices. And so he not only gives us a view of how Satan works, but then gives us practical tools for how to deal with Satan. And it's so helpful. In fact, the uh, chancellor of, our, of my seminary, Ligon Duncan, um, he, he, he says he has about six copies of this, I think, uh, and it is one of his most recommended books. So when the chancellor of the seminary recommends a book, uh, I pay attention. But the, when we look at this verse, as we will here in just a moment, you'll notice that it contains a promise. It, it tells us that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. But the question that I always have in reading that is, how do I effectively resist Satan? Uh, do I just need to concentrate real hard? Is it just a matter of willpower? Is that how I get Satan to leave me alone in a moment of temptation? Maybe another more difficult question to ask is this, is how can I uh, recognize a particular temptation of Satan so that I'm more prepared to resist it? In other words, how do I know it's actually Satan? Because what Brooks will show us here in a moment uh, through his exposition is that what Satan often does is he covers sin in shiny wrapping paper, and he makes it look very attractive to us. Uh, and so really an objective of this sermon tonight is to, is to kind of take that wrapping paper off, 
is to uncover some of Satan's devices so that we can better recognize how he works and then be better prepared to resist him when he comes. I do believe that to effectively resist Satan, we have to know something about how he works. I don't know if this is a correct term, but we, in, in some respects, need to have a Satanology. <laughs> we need to understand how Satan works so that we can uh, properly and effectively resist him. And, and it's for this reason that Thomas Brooks wrote his uh, book. And it's very pastoral. It's written to his congregation. And I think some of that will come out. Some of the, the remedies are, are, are my own application and twists on what Brooks has said, uh, but much of it is his own. And so uh, I, as we uh, go to our text and then to prayer, I just want to say, let us uh, pay attention eagerly uh, to these, uh, advi- this advice and, and these remedies that he gives us here. I think they'll be of great benefit to you. Uh, So let's read our text. This is James chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, and then we'll pray and and jump in. Here's uh, what the word of the Lord says to us this evening. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are your words given for our instruction, for our rebuke and correction and sanctification. And so because there are your words, we can ask you to come and act in accordance with your word to teach us, to guide us, to train us, to discipline us, Lord. We ask that you would do this, Lord. Leave us not to our own devices, for we know, Lord, that in our own strength we are weak. We're prone to temptation. We're prone to fall into Satan's snares. Lord, let this not be a time where that occurs, but let our hearts and minds be set upon this text, be so moved by your spirit that we're able to understand more about how Satan works and so be better prepared to to, to send him packing for the hills with your word and the tools of your word that you grant to us, Lord. Do this by the work of your spirit. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to follow a similar format to Brooks, which is listing out Satan's device, giving a a kind of meaning or explanation of that device, and then providing a remedy for it. So so the first of Satan's devices, uh, according to Brooks, is this, that what he does is he presents the bait and he hides the hook. He presents the bait and he hides the hook. The hook. He presents the golden cup and he hides the poison. He presents the sweet and the pleasure and the, the momentary profit of sin and hides the wrath and misery and shame and despair that follows once we've committed that sin. In other words, what Satan wants to do is he wants to hide the consequences of sin by presenting sin in a favorable or pleasurable way. He tries to make sin look good. And it tries to deter us from thinking about what's actually underneath that shiny wrapping paper, as I mentioned. He obscures the penalty of sin by promoting the, the pleasure of sin. He obscures the penalty of sin by promoting the pleasure of sin. I remember as a child when I was walking around, uh, not proud of this story, it continues to haunt me. Uh, I was walking around a candy store, uh, innocent enough. But I thought, in my ignorance, that I could get away with very quickly lifting up one of the bins, snagging a gummy shark, uh, and the owner would know nothing about it. It's a gummy shark, right? It's worth it. Uh, And so the initial pleasure of enjoying that candy obscured 
the potential consequences, which, uh, of course, later resulted in the owner, to my terror, chasing me out of the store. Uh, this was uh, in Ecuador while we were growing up on the mission field, and so he said some things in Spanish that I'm not quite sure I know the meaning of or knew the meaning of at the time, but they, were, they didn't sound pleasant. Uh, and this is a simple example, of course, but I, th- I think... Uh, there are much more costly ones that we could think of. Instances where, where Satan uh, makes something appear very, very uh, palpable, very pleasurable, which underneath has a, a razor blade. Uh, let's think of a biblical example for a minute. Remember David as he uh, lingered on the top of his roof and contemplated the pleasure of, of taking Bathsheba into himself that initial thought and desire, it obscured the very severe consequences of what would come. And David was not a foolish man. He was not an ignorant man. He, he knew what it would mean to take another man's wife. And yet that was obscured because of the pleasure, initial uh, uh, feeling and thought of, of pleasure of that sin. And that's exactly the way Satan works. Consider that the longer that you, you kind of gaze at sin, the longer you allow that desire to, to rest in your mind, the more you kind of think on it, the greater time you spend contemplating it, the more that desire is going to grow and the stronger it will become. And so this leads us to our first remedy here. To this, Brooks recommends as a remedy that we keep our furthest, the furthest possible dis- distance from sin. You stay as far away from it as possible. He says here that the best course to prevent falling into the pit is to keep the greatest distance from it. If it looks like sin, if it smells like sin, run the other way. Keep far away. Drive away and banish the thoughts and the desires. The immediate moment they come in, drive them away. Because again, the longer we dwell on it, the more it will be, the stronger the desire will become. James 1.15 says this, that desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You notice there's a natural progression there. I was teaching my students through the book of James, and it, it, it's quite a, 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 ter- a, ter- a, ter- a terrifying image here. The idea of sin is kind of this growth that happens. It, it's conceived and then it's born, and then when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. It's quite a horrifying image. But you see the progress of sin. It begins in the desire. And so we need to, immediate, we need to train ourselves to immediately drive away that desire when it comes and not allow it to linger. Uh, endeavor to avoid even the opportunity for sin. So we, we tell the men at the anchorage, right? It's not wise when you get out of the anchorage to go walk back into a bar. Even if, you, even if you feel you have, in, in one sense, uh, put away your uh, addiction, walking into a bar is not going to uh, uh, incite you to good things. It will do just the opposite. So avoid any opportunity for Satan to kind of even stir up those desires. Know, know what your triggers are. Know what your triggers are. Know what triggers you. Know what triggers those sinful uh, desires. Pray that God would not lead us into temptation. But Brooks here says this, that we should not pray and then blindly walk into situations in which we know we're going to be tempted. To pray, he says, oh God, lead us not into temptation while enjoying with and playing with the fire of sinful desire is like placing, uh, is like placing your hand into a fire and, and praying to God that you not be burned. Uh, he says to pray, lead us not into temptation while 
playing with the desire for sin is like sticking your hand into the fire and then asking God, God, let me not be burned. Uh, it's foolish. And so we should drive away, steer far clear of, of any semblance of sin. The second remedy is this, that uh, we ought to uh, honestly contemplate the consequences of sin. That is, we should think about what will happen should we carry out that sin. We should think on the consequences. No, I don't think that only the consequences and fear of consequences should be our motivation for not sinning. But I do think that it is wise for us in the moment when Satan's trying to make sin look very pleasurable for us to think about what are the consequences of this action? What will happen if, in fact, I do uh, enter into this sin? It is true that sometimes we're caught unaware by sin. Sometimes it comes upon us in a moment. But I think for most of us, it, 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 we're probably more dealing with habitual sins. Think we, we know what our weaknesses are, and, and, and they may perhaps be things that we've struggled with some, for some time. And so we need to consider how that has gone for us in the past. When Satan comes again to tempt you with the same thing, you need to go, wait a minute, I've been here before. I, I know what happens after this. I know, I know the consequences. I know what will result uh, after this. Take a moment to consider that although sin in the moment may appear to be pleasurable, it brings with it shame and misery and despair uh, that is in no way, shape, or form worth uh, enjoying uh, that uh, sin, even for its su- subtle or temporary uh, pleasures. The second device here of Satan to paint, oh, this one stings, to paint sin with virtue's colors. To paint sin with virtue's colors. You see, Satan knows that if he showed you your sin for what it really was, you would be repulsed by it. You would, because sin is repulsive. And so he knows that what he needs to do is he needs to dress sin up a little bit. He needs to make it appear like a virtue. And so he dresses pride in the garment of personal excellence and adorns it with the praises of others for that excellence. He disguises covetousness as good business. It's just good methods of getting what I want. It's good, good business. He disguises drunkenness as good fellowship. Ah, I'm just enjoying my friends. It's just good company. He disguises flippancy. Not caring about anything is youthfulness. He disguises riotousness as the expression of our Christian rights and freedoms. He disguises blunt rudeness as the expression of truth in love. Compromise as winsomeness and kindness. Self-promotion as missional living. Or, this one, this one really stings, self-deprecation as true humility. In other words, what Satan does is he, he, he convinces us that, that certain expressions of our sin, uh, he, he, he endeavors to convince us that they're, they're really just uh, virtuous qualities. He endeavors to convince us that certain actions and attitudes that are really are sinful are actually godly and commendable. And he wants us to excuse that behavior in our mind. Have you ever heard that voice? I'm not being prideful. I'm just showcasing the gifts and abilities that God has given me. I'm not being rude or abrasive. People need to hear the truth, and I'm just the one who's willing to say it to them. I'm not a workaholic. I'm just pouring out myself for the kingdom of God. I'm not compromising. I'm just trying to be kind, and I'm just trying to be like Paul, who said, be all things to all people. How easily Satan can lure us into sin by making us believe that our favorite sins are really just uh, character virtues. Hmm. 
what remedy do we have for this device? Uh, Prayer. We need to ask God to more clearly reveal the nature of our sinfulness. No one knows us better than God. And as such, there's no better remedy than to seek the wisdom and light of God. And so standing in his light, be able to see ourselves more clearly. John, you mentioned a few weeks ago that John Calvin speaks of two different kinds of knowledge, a knowledge of God and a knowledge of ourselves. And you mentioned that the two are intertwined. Uh, And we see that so clearly, I think, when it comes to understanding how uh, Satan works against us. Because the reality is, is that the better we know God, the better we will know ourselves and the more prepared we will be uh, to deal with uh, Satan and his devices like this. We all have blind spots and we all have blind spots. Uh, It is easy uh, it is easy to, to, to excuse our sin as being virtuous because we have blind spots. And sometimes those blind spots are blind spots to others around us. And so we need the Spirit of God to reveal those blind spots and to illumine them for us. But a second remedy that is also uh, necessary is, also, is, is surrounding yourself with godly people. Uh, people who are also being led by the Spirit of God and who are willing, as in the language of Galatians 6, to gently rebuke you and restore you. And I say gently for a reason. Galatians 6 tells us that the person who is spiritual should, uh, in a gentle way, restore the one who is in sin. We do need other loving believers around us to not only encourage us in our fight against sin, but to warn us of the deceitfulness of sin and provide godly counsel for us. Uh, spouses are great for this. Thank you, love. But so are true friends. Don't, don't live in a vacuum chamber. Uh, as John mentioned, uh, to isolate ourselves, that's the worst thing that we can do. To isolate ourselves from godly counsel, to isolate ourselves from others who are willing to give us godly counsel and to rebuke us when necessary and to speak critically into our lives, that's to put ourselves in a very dangerous position. Because when we are isolated, we are unable to see how Satan can lure us into this device of Uh, of our favorite sins being disguised as virtues. Device three, uh, Satan endeavors to convince us of the smallness and insignificance of sin and that such small sins are inconsequential. In other words, Satan wants us to believe that there is such a thing as small sins and that such small sins are really not that big a deal. You've probably heard of the concept or idea of a little white lie, right? It's a lie that is considered a white lie because it's not particularly harmful to anybody. There are no perceived consequences to uh, that lie. Well, what Satan wants to do is he wants to take that logic and then he wants to uh, apply it kind of wholesale to the reality of our sin and convince us that, that there is really a category of small sins that have no bearing on our, our Christian walk. He, he wants us to treat our sins uh, lightly, and he wants us to consider that they are, uh, they're, they're inconsequential, that they're small, uh, it's really not going to be a big deal, nobody's uh, going to know about it, right? He often works in our private sins and circumstances, right? This is where Satan attacks us when no one else is around, right? This is where he, he lurks in the shadows when we casually waste 20 minutes here, 15 minutes there, Another 10 minutes here on our phones. He works and lurks in the rounding off of a few digits off of our taxes. Who's going to know? 
He works and lurks in that quiet murmur of complaint about our husband or wife or brother or sister. He works in that subtle grudge against your in-laws. Perhaps in the animosity between your boss, your coworker, or your employee. But it's not really a problem because you never actually express it. He works in that supposedly innocent, flirtatious innuendo that's probably not going to go anywhere anyways, but you kind of hope it will. It's in not going back to return that item that you forgot to scan in your grocery cart. I got that one from Sarah. She did return the item a week later. It is in these seemingly mundane circumstances and often private circumstances of our life that Satan works in the shadows slowly and carefully building up a kind of callousness uh, to those small sins to make us think that they really are not that big a deal. They, they don't have any bearing on our Christian character. Well, to this we offer this remedy that we are to seriously consider that there is no such thing as small sins. There are no small sins since every sin is against God Almighty. There can be no such thing as a small sin. All right, we might ask, well, what, what's, the, what's our, our standard of measurement? How do we decide what is a small sin and what is not? Perhaps a small sin to us is not to someone else. But however we measure our sins, we need to understand that every sin, according to Scripture, earns for us what? Death. As its wages. For the wages of sin is death. I don't, I don't see Paul listing out there any categories at which, if you read the fine print, if you, if, if you have this sin, but it doesn't really uh, have any consequences attached to it, I guess it's okay under these circumstances. No. He says, the wages of sin is death. There, there's no category of, of small sin. It, it, now, it, it's true. Yes, there are varying degrees of sin, so that some sins are considered more heinous, right? Um, it's not the same, uh, murder is not the same as not returning your item that you took, uh, uh, you forgot to scan in your grocery cart. It's not the same. But still, both would be considered sinful in the case of being deceitful uh, and also in uh, pursuing murder. Both are sinful and are deserving of the wages of sin, which is death. And so let us consider the next time we're tempted to just bat our eyes at something that doesn't really seem like that big a deal. A lie that nobody will ever know about. Fudging on our taxes. Whatever it is. You know what it is. You know what those small things are. Let us consider that those small sins eventually will grow and build. And that those small sins in and of themselves are not small sins at all. They are still an affront to Almighty God. A second remedy is this. To seriously consider... This is a consequence that initial sin always gives way to greater sin. Initial sin always gives way to greater sin. Sin is never content. Okay? Its appetite is never sated. It will always want more. And so to think that we can get away with some small sins is to ignore the reality that eventually those sins are going to grow. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Cancer is not content to remain in one cell, but it spreads throughout the body. Mold is not content to just hang out on one corner of your bread. It wants the whole thing. So true uh, with our sin. We need to seriously consider that these small sins will grow. They'll develop into patterns. In her heyday, my uh, grandmother was a true Texan woman. Throughout my childhood, she owned uh, chickens. And, and listen, owning chickens in Texas is an ordeal. Can you guess why? Snakes. Probably the same thing in Georgia, truth be told. 
But it was inevitable that every summer we visited my grandma in San Antonio, there would always be this uh, uh, instance where we'd see her, of course, walking out of the field with a 12-gauge shotgun over her shoulder, um, probably a cowboy hat on, walking out to the chicken coop to go kill another snake that has made its way in. What was fascinating is, is she, she would tell us that you, you could do everything possible to secure that chicken coop, and yet still somehow the snakes would find a way in. And they were never content just to kind of get their heads in where they could snatch a few eggs. The reality is, is that the snake would endeavor, no matter how small the opening, to get its entire body into the chicken coop and there begin to make its home in the straw, hoping that it would not be found. To me, this is a, a, an illustration of what sin does and what its desire is. Sin never just wants to poke its head through. It wants to come in and make its home uh, in our hearts. And so here's my advice. Uh, take a 12-gauge shotgun to its head. Uh, do not entertain uh, any sins, but especially the ones that appear small and insignificant. Yes, true. You may not commit, ever commit murder in your life. Praise God. But you need to be as zealous for killing uh, the, the subtle jealousy that goes on in your heart. This, the subtle lustful glance that goes on. Whatever it is, you need to be zealous to kill that small sin because it is through those small sins that Satan often works over long periods of time to eventually build and grow into a, into a venomous viper that will be much harder uh, to kill. Uh, device number four, to use... Satan endeavors to use the abundant mercy and grace of God to leverage the allowance of sinful behavior. Okay? In other words, Satan uses the abundant mercy of God as motivation for sin. How does he do this? Well, think for a moment uh, of Paul's question. Paul asks the question, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? It seems like a strange question, right? Uh, we answer it, of course not. Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? No, it seems like a dumb question. But I think what Paul is doing is he's revealing, in one sense, uh, one of Satan's devices, this particular device here, which is to, to leverage the grace and mercy of God as an allowance for sin. Satan wants to convince us that because God's mercy is super abundant, uh, that we have a license to go on sinning. Because God is so forgiving, because he's so merciful, he tempts. You can go ahead and sin because you know that you'll be forgiven. God will not cast you off. He says you will not surely die. You're forgiven in Christ, so therefore go ahead and sin, and then you can ask God's forgiveness later. And surely he will give it to you. In this case, uh, Satan loves the abundance of God's mercy. He uses it to his advantage. Some of you may be aware of a man by the name of Tullian. I'm going to get his last name wrong. Chavidian. Uh, he's the grandson of, of Billy Graham. He pastored Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. When I was early on in my Christian walk, I read his book, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. It was a great book. Uh, greatly helped me in the early stages of my Christian life. He, uh, uh, Tullian unfortunately fell into the grievous sin of adultery. And it was later revealed by the woman with whom he was having an affair that uh, during that relationship, uh, Tullian was encouraging uh, their adulterous relationship uh, with the assurance that God had enough grace to forgive them for what they were doing. Now, we might scoff at that and think, I could never. We may say, I could never be so easily deceived, but we must not be so naive. 
to think that Satan will not in the moment of sin get us to believe the very same. It's sometimes very subtle. It's sometimes very subtle. But he will, he will plant that thought. You will think for a moment, even if I sin, I know I'm going to be forgiven. And he will use that as motivation to get you to sin. Satan wants to use even the characteristics of God to his own advantage. And, and what's so particularly cruel about this is the reality is, is that once he's gotten us to sin, the, he, he gets us to sin on the abundance of God's mercy. And then what does he do? Then he tells you, uh, God doesn't have enough mercy to forgive you. Afterwards, he, take, he takes that mercy away. He obscures that mercy and says, because you've sinned and spurned God's mercy, God doesn't have enough mercy for you anymore. It is so... Uh, cruel indeed. But what remedy do we have for this? We are to seriously consider that though we are forgiven in Christ and though there's no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus, our sins do indeed grieve God and incur his disfavor. So that's just to say that we should think on this. Yes, we are forgiven in Christ. Yes, there is now therefore no condemnation for us in Christ. We will not be condemned for our sin. But God is not pleased by sin, and sin does, in fact, grieve God. Now, I am convinced that no true believer will ultimately be okay in that state of hypocrisy. I don't believe a true believer can go on sinning that grace may abound. But even so, we ought to seriously be warned that God will often use the consequences of sin, and sometimes very grave consequences, to wake us up to this fact. God will not allow his mercy to be abused. He will not allow us to abuse this mercy. And so let us heed this warning and then answer with Paul, shall we go on saying that grace may abound? What is Paul's answer? By no means. May it never be. Uh, Device five, to deceive us into believing that remorse for sin is the same as repentance. Yikes. Uh, Satan hates true repentance. And so his desire is to conjure up all kinds of different substitutes for repentance. And one of those substitutes is to make us think we've truly repented if we just feel bad enough about our sin. Now, Thomas Brooks here, he gives a very lengthy explanation of what repentance is, which I'm not going to summarize here. I I do recommend the book to you to read, but uh, let me state it plainly. Let me distill what he says. Here's what he says Uh, In summary, feeling sorry for your sin is not the same as repenting for your sin. Feeling sorry for your sin is not the same as repenting for your sin. Uh, Many times, unfortunately, our grief over sin is uh, simply a reaction to the consequence of sin. Like the child who gets uh, caught, right? He's not sorry for eating the cookies that mom made for the neighbors, uh, but he's sorry that he got caught in doing so. But other, others of us may not need the consequence of sin. Instead, what we do is we just inflict a kind of self-punishment for sin. We, we know we've done wrong. And so we, we, we try to get ourselves to feel bad enough about that sin and bad enough about ourselves that then we think we've achieved what repentance uh, is. But neither of these are true repentance. Uh, Brooks rightfully says repentance for sin is worth nothing unless it is repentance from sin. From sin. What is he getting at? He's making the point that true repentance actually involves a turning away from our sin. It means that we actively move away from our sin. We hate our sin more than we hate the consequences, but we also hate the sin more than we hate ourselves. Repentance is not self-loathing. It is not uh, self-deprecation. It is turning from our sin. And it is also turning to godliness. Here's the remedy 
Pursue true repentance, which is not simply a turning from sin, but a turning to godliness. Uh, this point was new to me, and it was, it was really, really helpful for me to think about repentance. Repentance, Brooke says, is not simply turning from that which is all evil, but a turning unto that which is all good. In other words, he says, take the energy that was driving you towards sin and turn it around and let that energy drive you towards godliness. Don't simply hate your sin, but love godliness and pursue it. Invest in godly things, practices, and immerse yourself in godly settings. In other words, overcome evil with good. This is, uh, we've got two more here, and then we'll finish up. Device 5.5. It's not quite device 6. Device 5.5. Satan wants us to be comfortable with a general repentance. Okay, listen, we've all prayed, listen to me now. We've all prayed that prayer, Lord, forgive me for my sins. And then gone about our day. But the Westminster Confession here, I think, is really helpful when it says that it is every person's duty to repent of particular sins particularly. In other words, be specific. Don't content yourselves with a general, Lord, forgive me for I've done wrong. Get specific. The Lord already knows what you did. But it's actually in in a specific repentance that we can find freedom from specific sins. We need to call our sin what it is. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So what is, what is uh, the wisdom of Solomon here uh, advising us to do? We're to make true confession. That is, we're not to hold back. It's not a general confession. It's a specific confession. We're to un- uh, uncover our sins in confession, and then we're to forsake our sin. So let your confession before God be honest and make it specific. Tell the Lord what he already knows. Repent of particular sins particularly. Device six, I'll move quickly through these last two. Satan endeavors to continually show us what appears to be the prosperity and joy of the wicked in this life and so convince us of the profitlessness, that's my word, of godliness. Well, in other words, and, and I was going to read Psalm 73 here, but we're about out of time. In Psalm 73, David contemplates the success and prosperity of the wicked. He looks out and he says, right, uh, their eyes swell out through fatness. You know, of course, to be fat in the ancient world was a rarity, uh, perhaps not so these days. But he notices that the, the, the wicked are prosperous, they're joyful, their bodies are sleek, they have no pangs or guilt until death. They enjoy all the luxuries of this life, and they have no troubles as the godly do. And he, he, he says, honestly, my, my feet almost slipped. In other words, I almost fell into sin as I uh, saw the prosperity of the wicked. Well, Satan wants you to think that serving God really is, the, is a waste of your life and a waste of your time. He wants you to, to be convinced that there are far better things you could be doing with your time right now. Uh, you could be out enjoying yourself uh, in, in many of the ways that the wicked are doing now. They look like they're happy, don't they? You scroll through Instagram. It looks like these people are living uh, a life that, that we should envy. But here, here is the remedy that the psalmist offers. He says, go to the sanctuary of God and be, be reminded of the riches which are yours in Christ Jesus, riches that the wicked cannot touch. Think not on what they have, but what they lack and on what you have gained in Christ. Consider also that they are more empty and vacuous than they appear. 
This is a great quote from Brooks here. He says, the heart of man is a three-sided triangle that the full circle of the world cannot fill. The heart of man is a three-sided triangle. Uh, Three-sided there, of course, speaking of the Trinity. It is a hole, a vacuous hole that can only be filled by God himself. Uh, They're not satisfied. They're not. The wicked are not satisfied. Uh, Consider also that the adversity of the Christian life is actually a, a sign of God's blessing. We're not meant to make this world our home. We're bound for a better country. And so consider uh, all the glories and riches of heaven, which Christ is now preparing you for. And that is an inheritance that the wicked cannot touch. It is yours in Christ alone. Here's the final device. Uh, Satan works in idleness and weariness. Idleness and weariness. I think weariness is particularly applicable here tonight. You have heard it said. Right? That idle hands are the devil's workshop. That's actually the Living Bible's translation of Proverbs 16, 27. But I also say to you, you have heard it said, but I also say to you that a weary heart and mind are the devil's playground. See some head nodding. Understand. Can relate. Satan works to draw us into sin both when we're underworked and lazy and when we're overworked and weary. Because in both instances, we're weak, our defenses are down, and we're unprepared to deal with his attacks. We lower our defenses. Uh, the perfect example of this, I think, is, um, is in the play uh, David from Sight and Sound. This was so impactful for me. You know, when David starts to gain great success uh, in his endeavors, he's become king, and he's going out to fight battle after battle, and he's so successful and of course, he's doing it for the Lord, and you know that he is. In the integrity of his heart, he is, he is doing what the Lord commanded him to do, which was to be king. But you notice as, as it progresses, and of course, every time he's like right about to sit down, they come in and say, Moab is attacking. Somebody else is attacking. And David's like, oh, here we go again. Uh, you notice throughout that scene, and it's so subtle and so wonderful, David is trying to kind of play his song, I'm after your heart. You notice he's trying to strum and play that song. But slowly, slowly his song starts to get weaker and weaker, right? More quiet. He starts to kind of get more weary. You visibly see him get more weary. And his, the, the, the energy of his song just starts to go. And then he doesn't even have time for his song. And, and the, you know, the song itself, I'm after your heart, of course, points to the reality of, uh, of God's desire to be in relationship with David. And David's desire to be in relationship with God. But what happens? The busyness of life gets in the way. And what's so fascinating, of course, is that David is doing the Lord's work. But in doing the Lord's work, he has forgotten the Lord himself. Uh, it, that's how Satan works, especially on mature Christians. That's what he wants to do. He wants to make you busy with the Lord's work so that you forget about actually spending time in relationship with the Lord. And he wants to wear you down through that godly work to the point where you're too weary to even care about being in a relationship with the Lord. So that when you, sit, when you get home at night, all you want to do is, is go to bed. You're done. You're tired. You're weary. You're exhausted. You have no time left for the Lord. And then you get up and, and guess what? Go serve God again the next day while God is desiring your heart. So let not your songs grow faint. Spend time with the Lord. Don't let the weariness of serving the Lord drive you away from a relationship with the Lord. Uh, This is what the class personal uh, or classics of personal devotion has been about. That's the, that's the thesis of the class to make it so that we busy seminary students do not neglect personal devotion. And so I say and commend to you, do not neglect personal devotion.
Uh, two remedies very quickly for this idleness and weariness. Godly rest. Okay? God established a pattern of six days of work, one day of rest for a reason. He gave us a well-ordered structure. The problem is we just don't trust him. We just don't believe that God really has our best interest in heart. Uh, you have to fight for this day to make it a day of rest. You have to fight for it. There are, there are a million other things crowding for your attention. If you have to stay up till 12 a.m. doing lesson plans, do it to save your Sunday, to save your day of rest. You must fight for the Sabbath. The second remedy is that of the means of grace. John, you mentioned this this morning. So I'll just say briefly, what, what, what do these do for us? They energize us. They fill us up. They nourish us by the Spirit so that we can continue uh, on in our Christian walk and witness and work and not be so worn down that we become uh, defenseless. The, the, these means of grace, the word, sacrament, prayer, fellowship, these are kind of like the building blocks of our wall of defense. And so don't neglect, uh, don't neglect these means of grace. Let me say overall, to close, that our final remedy is that of humility. You notice in this verse it says that God gives grace. And who does he give grace to? Look at the verse with me. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see, the proud person says, I don't need help. The proud person says, I'm okay. I don't really need to know about Satan's devices. I'm good. I got it. The humble person, otherwise, says, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. The great antithesis to our defeat of sin is believing that we can fight this battle in our own strength. If the battle really belongs to the Lord, then let's be honest about that fact. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. He is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of any fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is for you to feel your need of him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us so many tools with which we might resist Satan and all his devices. We pray, Lord, that having heard this wisdom, Lord, from your word and and, and having that wisdom applied to our hearts by the spirit, Lord, that we'll be better prepared to fight against the spiritual powers of darkness, Lord, as we go out into this week. We know that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against Satan and his, his enemies who would love to. Uh, bring us down, lay us low in the dirt. But Father, we will, we do have the victory in Christ. We will have the victory in this life. So help us, Lord, to press on in the spirit of Christ, to not give up, but to fight the good fight of faith, to be humble in recognizing our need and total dependence upon you, and to use the tools that you've given us, Lord, to fight the good fight. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.